All right, live to tape with this one, Joe. We got to go live. We do. Yeah, I can't. So all my cussing can't do any of that. <laughs> no, 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 um, cursing, cussing, okay. or or doing other things that I've got to edit out. Well, I'm. We're going to keep it clean. <laughs> clean of sneezes, clean of sniffles, clean of coughs. That's going to be tough because you know it's spring and I've got these allergies. Can yeah. you tell? You sound a little allergy-ish. Yeah, you can't say allergenic because I then there would yeah, be you're not, you're causing I'm allergies. Not, causing all- I, I, not that I know of. I mean, I might be. <laughs> God knows there are probably people in this world who say that they're allergic to me. Yeah, write in, listeners, if you're <laughs> if you feel as if uh, Professor Turner has ever made you break out in hives. So we've had a series of un- unfortunate events in a way. I don't know if they're unfortunate. It's just that we we didn't plan to have a hiatus last week. The True. Week, the, the week before we recorded a show where we'd gone like three weeks, people yeah. are going to think we're like phoning this in, like we're going to playing golf every and weekend it's not, instead and it's of... Not, uh, it's not true. No, I mean, it's not, we're not the president. We don't play golf every weekend. We, we had these unplanned, you know, uh, hiatai, uh, and, uh, what, which is a plural say, of hiatus. We knew there would be conflicts with our normal recording schedule, and we thought we could work some in. Like we thought we, could, we would be able to work this mailbag episode in last Before, week. Before, right. And, that and just it didn't just happen. ended up like you couldn't, you know, you were out of town coming back and there wasn't enough time between when I went out of yeah. town. So, but apologies. Yeah. And then there was the overcast not pushing out episodes. I'm, so, like, who I, knows I who's going to hear know. this? Like, five people are going to hear I, this. I still don't know. I mean, well, I mean, most of our downloads are not overcast. Oh, okay. The vast majority. I mean, but we tend to get, we were off the pace by about a fifth. You know, we only had about a fifth of our normal overcast downloads for the last episode it's it's so we kinda, were off by four fifths. it's sneaked by up it, it sneak sneaked by sneak back up um but we're still off the pace so something happened so that overcast lost track of our subscriptions i know it was right. it's something special to overcast and i had to unsubscribe and then resubscribe in order to see our our then newest episode because i wasn't getting it another listener on twitter said it wasn't enough to unsubscribe and resubscribe they had to delete the podcast and then go back in and add it again so I don't know what's up. Um, I didn't have a problem. I guess that's... I use Overcast. I, didn't I guess have that's a what I mean by subscribing and unsubscribing. That's what I did. I deleted it from my list of subscriptions okay. and then went back and added it. To my, I don't know how to unsubscribe any other way. So Yeah, I mean, in may, any event. maybe they meant like turn off downloads and then turn them back on. But what you need to do is go and pull the RSS feed again for some reason. Right. I don't know why that is. I don't so, know it's if it's something internal to what Marco's doing. And it didn't affect any of my other... P- podcasts that i get from overcast yeah. like it's not like any of the other ones suddenly disappeared from regular updating yeah, i went on there and looked and there, there were some people complaining about not updating but that probably always happens so i don't know if there's some server glitch that occasionally bites a show particular or, show yeah. or if there's something that that dan was doing on fireside our kind of podcast host that suddenly changed the rss feed and overcast didn't pick up i don't know we didn't do anything on our end other than ship a show like right. we normally do right uh, in any event, here we are. Maybe, maybe Marco put in a quality filter, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what's going on. Well, that's now I really want to cuss. Yeah, but it, it's been a great few weeks. Like personally, we had our uh, spring breaks, and yep. I, you know, had a had a good adventure with my son. He's, yeah, he's a senior and is going to be going off to college, and we had some time together on the road and backpacking, yep. and and that was that was great. And and then this past weekend was the big ears festival in knoxville which is a great festival for people who like new music and avant-garde music and and it was just terrific but we can talk about that another time if you okay want. but i can't stop thinking about it neat so maybe it'll maybe it'll come back up on maybe in the middle of talking about something else i'll 
talk about one of the one of the shows that we saw. So you really we, enjoyed it? Oh, really enjoyed and it. And that's great. Couldn't believe how good it was. It made me excited to do Oral Argcon. Mm. You know, it was like when you go to like a really well put together conference or something else where the people have clearly kind of thought outside the box and I hate using that's a cliche. It's almost like when you say think outside the box. You're, you're proving inside, that you're you inside are the box. trapped yeah. inside the box. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In fact, that you may never have been right. out of it. Yeah. But as you know, as DFW says, you know, cliches are cliches because they're true. And so it is true that sometimes people think outside of the quote unquote box. Yeah. And and when they've like rethought the design of something like that, that it's it's inspiring, right? Because boy, this does work better. Someone really thought about this. Someone designed yeah. this experience. And yeah. It makes me excited to do Oral Artcon. The fresh, the feeling of freshness and crisp something's you know more crisp and and snappy and enjoyable yeah. and uh, I it's a nice that, feeling like even when it doesn't quite work out or it's not an improvement over what came before the very fact that someone has thought about this that someone put yeah you know some some design effort into some aspect of something yeah. makes me happy yep and 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 not only so not only did this festival go really well but the all of the acts were inspiring oh boy oliver coates on the cello i mean he played this piece, Music for Losers, which was written by, I think it's a Scottish composer that, and who isn't going to allow it to be performed anymore. And it, it's just, it was, I've never seen somebody do with a cello with this guy. I mean, it was just outrageous. Mm. Just outrageous. Why isn't the person going to allow it to be performed anymore? I think it's a deeply personal piece that is kind of, I don't know, upset. it was written when a friend was dying and it, mm. w- with certain feelings. And I don't know that they want that out in the world anymore in a way. Okay. I, I, it was, you know, Coates explained it, but it was. I wonder you know, if they've properly. Um, so under U.S. copyright law, there is a cover tunes compulsory license provision. Right. And it. I hope that they, if that is what that artist would prefer, I hope that they have thought about that and managed to avoid triggering that cover tunes compulsory license provision. Because if they have triggered it, it's not up to them whether someone else performs it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I, I think this is more of a norm thing, right? Among the, among the people in the world who could perform that piece, and I have to tell you, having seen it, it is very few. Mm. There, I found one YouTube example, which was, as far as I could tell, at about half the pace that Oliver Coates played it. And wow. even that seemed like, you know, like a virtuoso. So uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, with magic, right? You know, and magic is and um, magic is just norms, right? The protection of tricks is just norms rather than law. Am I right about that? Well, You're kind of well, shaking I, I don't know bit. that it, uh, you, 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 you said, did you say nothing but norms or? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, hmm, I mean, there I don't could be, there that, could be trademark but... elements of that, but you, like you can't copyright a magic. Can you patent a magic trick? I forget which ones you can and can't. Like recipes, you can't patent, right? <laughs> um, food recipes. Y- you could you could patent a new and non-obvious food recipe. It's just very hard to come up with one that's new and non-obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I don't see why you couldn't. I mean, if you if it lets you achieve a useful result, uh, and it, and it's actually a series of steps that take some physical stuff and and turn right. it into a different kind of physical stuff. Uh, but I just mean, because you what made... are metal alloys but re- but recipes? But well, and there okay. are plenty of patents Fair. on metal alloys. Fair. So... I mean, but I guess what I'm thinking about is the what I had thought was kind of the notorious like uncopyrightability and un- and unpatentability of normal recipes in an ordinary cookbook. Like I come up with a with a yeah, with well, a macaroni cop- and cheese bake that no one's ever. Copyright is a different matter, right? Because copyright's not designed to protect the usefulness as such. So you're talking about a copyright protection for a recipe in a recipe book. Um, Yeah, the copyright can't 
can't protect the facts about what's in that recipe and how it and how it operates. Right. It does protect that individual's expression of about course. that recipe and mm-hmm. the way they talk about it and the way they present it and any photographs they might offer. Of mm-hmm. course, that's copyrightable. Um, boy, we're we're kind of off the beaten track. No, here. I just want I, I just want to say that um, I just it, it came up and and in, in, in because. You know, when we focus too much on the law, we can miss the norms of of somewhat tight knit communities, or or let's yeah. just say norm thick communities. This is mm-hmm. the kind of thing you know Dave Fagundis has written about, definitely, and, and a bunch of other people, right? Um, so that things other than I formal IP law can play a a, a small or a very large role, right? In the degree to which innovation sort of diffuses among the potential users of that innovation right. and, and the like, and I agree with that hundred percent. That's obviously true. So, like in the magician community, I would think that the that the norms are probably more important than whatever legal protection they yeah. could get. And the performance barrier is there too, right? Like Did you ever being, see that? Yeah. yeah. Like if the fact that, that I might, the fact that someone might disclose to me, not that anyone has, but the fact that someone might disclose to me the way a magic trick was done. First of all, there, there's a great deal of it I would not understand because I, I'm not a practitioner. So I wouldn't really know what the things that they were saying to me meant. In, in any real sense. Because right. you don't have um, any direct connection with the astral plane or any of the... <laughs> no, I'm not Dr. Any, Strange. Right, you know, any, uh, any of the things you would need to do in order to perform real magic. Correct. And, yeah. and so they could explain to me, and I, you know, these sense in which I wouldn't understand. Yeah. And, and even if I did understand it sort of conceptually, I couldn't, I couldn't physically perform it. So, so there's a barrier of my, my a, a, sort of a capacity barrier of two different types that are intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, a cellist might be able to see the score of that uh, and not be able to perform it. Or someone who isn't a cellist could see the score of it and say, well, I, I can sort of read a little bit of music, but I don't know what this means to as a cello player because I'm not a cello player. Right. right? So those are other barriers to imitation. Mm-hmm. This is a sense in which before there's a movable type press, copyright protection is not terribly important. Why? Because copying a book takes a long time. So you got to write it out. Right. And only certain people can do that, and it's very slow. Yeah, and and so you don't need to worry about I've got a book, and someone's going to have an imitation of it tomorrow. No, they're not. They have to sit down and write the whole darn thing out. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's the story. It's of, a physical limitation. That's the story of the whole digital transformation, right? Is well, uh, of the Gutenberg transformation. No, I mean, that exactly. Was, right, but it's the, it's the story that people are now immersed in the the upheavals that they are now immersed in is an, is an, is the latest iteration of that same story. Correct. Yeah. Or at least that's one way to think about it. Did you ever see the magician show on Netflix? No, I recommend it. It's a, okay. like a documentary following a, a number of magicians. And, and one of these kinds of disputes does come up where someone mm. has seemingly like lifted another person's trick, including kind of some of the performative elements of it. Mm. It's really have you seen, have you seen the, um, the, the series, the magicians on sci-fi, which is based on the books uh, by Lev Grossman about, no, uh, Okay. But I know what you're talking about. This yeah. is the adult Harry Potter. It is, and it's really fun. So I would recommend that too. You recommended something called The Magicians. I too am going to recommend something called The Magicians, although one is fictional and one is not. I'll also recommend, have you heard of this thing, The Gift of the Magi? Uh, I have read that story, yes. Okay, okay. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of the Spice Majorum? <laughs> I have. Okay. I, I have. Any other Madge things that we can recommend? Have you, uh, have you heard of... Um, a an important uh, psychoactive compound called the spice uh, from Frank Herbert's Dune series. I think you're thinking of uh, John Carmack, the designer of uh, Doom. The no, I think game. you're thinking of McCormick spices. 
I think you're thinking of um, of uh, I think you're thinking of the road by Cormac McCarthy. Mm. Are, we, are we really going to go no, down I this think, road? I think you're this thinking a, of. I think you're thinking of speaking who of act? lifting things. Speaking of lifting things, we are totally lifting this kind of bit from someone who does it much better. Right. I think you're Merle thinking of Man. HUAC, which was Joe McCarthy's <laughs> committee in Congress. Huh. Huh. I think you're thinking of the committee the on House on American Activities. Of, yeah. Hmm? I think you're thinking of the current president. <laughs> I think, I think Mic drop. It ends there. Okay, so where are we going from here? I don't even remember what we were. So doing. we've got we're, we were we were talk, we were recapitulating our experience over the past few weeks, and now we're going to go into mailbag. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do our. So let's let me pause. Now we here. got we got a source. Let me pause here for the mailbag stinger, the little opening segment. You know the music that plays during this this part. You know we need a mailbag bumper <laughs> right. of some kind. Right. Uh, so what we've got, we've got many mailbags because we get emails. We get, there are some, some tweets. There's some Facebook comments. Mm-hmm. We get stuff from all over the place. There's just people coming up to us. There's, yeah, there's just people flinging stuff at me as I walk by. I think that's mostly garbage <laughs> that they fling at me. So that's not necessary. I think the message is simply the having flung the garbage, <laughs> which I can report. So let's, um, uh, we're, so I think we stopped. Like we're back in like end of January. That's the last things. time we did a you and me episode with with some mailbag action. Yeah, and let me just say that the the first email that we had. Do we want to do email before tweets and Facebooks and such? Well, okay, we can do whatever order that you want, Joe. Okay, it's your well, let's, show. It's your let's show. do that. It's not my show. It's your show. Uh, let me just say this though: the one email that we're not going to talk about it's from listener Philip following up. And let me just say I agree with listener Philip. I do too. Joe is totally setting up a straw man. No, 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 no. I disagree about that. I agree with what? him that ultimately when you reflect on it, it we, we were in agreement. And okay. we were just talking over some details and talking over some well, of the history. this is fascinating listening with no so, context so whatsoever. No one was, so no one was setting up a, a straw, a, you know, a straw man, a straw boat, a straw hat. Okay. There was I'm, no straw I'm just of saying any kind. that I take the listener's side. Okay. <laughs> um, All right. What, what do you got? So I just want to, I just want to say that Focusing because uh, it, it turns out that the Twitter and the Facebook stuff is is pretty light this time. First of all, we had there was a there was a tweet about uh, Chris Newman's top flight vocabulary, and I agree, Chris Newman, brilliant person that he is, has ha, does have a top flight vocabulary and can use words like obfuscatory uh, with a plum and <laughs> elan. And so, what was the other word? I don't have the tweet in front of me. I don't either. I feel like we've. I just used have that a note to myself about it. But mm-hmm. but we need to step up our vocabulary game. And I realize that burden falls on me. <laughs> uh, and I'm and I'm prepared to do that. All right. Uh, so I so I will I I promise listeners uh, I will I will try to uh, be a little bit more. You're trying to think of a word now, and you're highfalutin failing. in my vocabulary. Yeah, okay, which, right. which is a word. So that, that Look it great, up, folks. That, that was a great episode with Chris Newman. Though. It was a great episode. Yeah, vocabulary aside, I, I, I did have someone come up to me about that episode. Actually, did you seriously? Yeah. What did and they say? Just was wanting to talk a little bit more uh, about um, Hofelda Palooza. Yeah, listener Jacob, I think was uh, you know was interested in kind of following up on yeah. that on, on those issues and on. You know, particularly on what I thought, I guess, was curious what I thought about it. Maybe I didn't make it clear enough in the in the episode because we we're focusing on yeah on Chris's paper. Sure, and you know, and it's one of those it's one of those topics where in order to really know what you think, it's one of those things that tugs on the entire rest of the universe. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? This, this is this is the episode about about property and 
and the Hofeldian notion of property anyway. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back and give that one a listen. Cause yeah, because it, it, it really was a great conversation. A conversation. So thanks again to Chris and, and for, for, for educating us in many ways, including good words to use. Keep uh, going. Keep going. What else? The uh, Our federalism episode got some huzzas uh, from friend of the podcast, uh, Nicholas George Kopoulos, who mm-hmm. enjoyed our conversation with Jennifer Bullman Posen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a fun conversation. I liked that episode a lot too. The federalism stuff, because I'm doing the seminar on on the uh, the transitions that we're experiencing with different ways of regulating marijuana, uh, it, they are very difficult questions. Yeah. Uh, and they, they ramify in vertical and in horizontal directions. They involve lots of different government actors at lots of different levels of government local, state, federal, the policy objectives and the policy options are quite complex in in no small measure due to the fact that the, the range of things you're trying to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. Agricultural topics like energy usage, water usage, uh, uh, degradation of environmental resources uh, to criminalization and its effects in communities and everything in between. It's just sort of mind boggling, but totally expected. I mean, anytime you try in a legal system to integrate separate authorities in a system which is not purely hierarchical, yep, you're going to have these issues. Yeah, because the institutional, the complexity of creating interwoven institutions, right? Uh, that's about as big as a challenge gets. Yeah. Because institutions is the me- are the mechanisms through which all of this stuff is brought to bear in any event. Now, I haven't so, thought this analogy through. Okay. And that should come as no surprise. But if, if a, a typical nuclear family, you know, the two, the two parents uh, both have authority, that's like a separation of powers issue, I guess, although there's, uh, there's quite a bit of overlap. overlap. This is uh, the zone of twilight. Mm. I guess is is quite common in in with two parents, and then the kids also. This is something you learn as a parent. Also have a little bit of authority, <laughs> <laughs> and and so even if you think of it as like hierarchical in some sense, there is not a pure. Uh, there's not even a pure hierarchy in a family. So, uh, so a family is like something with multiple heads of authority over different kinds of matters, and sometimes the same matter where we have to work out all this friction. So it basically, right. should come as no surprise to you, Joe, that I identify in any. <laughs> in any cooperative enterprise, a, a legal system in which there are often multiple heads of authority, and one of the key tasks of a legal system is is trying to rationalize how that cooperation is con- going to continue when that when those authorities conflict. Yes, and it's it's not to throw in another completely uh, befuzzled metaphor or analogy. I mean, it's it's not Newtonian physics. It's it's oh boy, it's it's field theory physics. Oh boy. Right? All of this stuff is very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to get all these st- things to interact, yeah. it's it's not like they're the sort of billiard balls of imagination in a Newtonian sense of these you're things saying waves. banging around. Yeah, there's there's waves and fields and uh, mm-hmm. action at a distance and funky, funky stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's that makes it all that much harder. Oh, boy. All in, right. In some sense. So, Excellent. So it, that was a fun conversation. And I, I think we'll wind up having additional federalism conversations. Uh, yeah, this is a prediction based on the era in which we find ourselves that the mm-hmm. the, the the sort of uh, the scattering and shattering of authority mm-hmm. and the way that it that that means other people try to pick up 
a piece and try to do something that they think is effective with it. That's going to keep happening, and we're going to want to keep talking about it. The other Twitter thing I would mention before we get to mailbag is simply a shout out to a friend of the show, Cameron, who sent us a page from Judge Reinhardt's opinion concurring in the denial of in-bank rehearing in in one of the uh, Trump executive order cases out of the Ninth Circuit, um, which which was just a way to flag that you know the 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 Ninth Circuit is sort of being its its self. Right, which well, is this that. Com- mean, complex bo- body of people who have very differing views. Uh, Judge Reinhardt, Judge Kaczynski, and others uh, trying to get their hands around this. I mean, the issue here: this, this was a executive order. This stuff. was an opinion about taking in bank the panel's opinion, which was the opinion which, uh, well, the Ninth Circuit opinion. Which, I, what did it technically do? It um, it refused to. Refused um, to, to remove stay, the TRO, right, which was becoming a PI, TRO, or which they interpreted, I think, as a preliminary injunction yeah. motion. So, so basically, it's the it's the opinion oh, on the which, first executive order, the, not the revised the appellate one. opinion, which basically approved the the um, the I won't say striking down, but at least as a as a, the hold on the yeah. first executive order yep. that was mooted when the Trump administration pulled that order, replaced it with a new order, which is now subject of a bunch of other litigation. Right. But there were a number of judges on the Ninth Circuit who nonetheless wanted to in-bank this now moot issue in order to correct what they saw as a as a panel opinion, which would improperly set precedent because they didn't agree with it. And so there was a back and forth about whether that was the proper subject of an in-bank and what some of the, and then they got into the, some of the merits, I think, yeah. in this dissent. So it, it's worth taking a look at. But, and the Ninth um, Circuit has, uh, you know, because it's uh, quite large, uh, has uh, in-bank procedures that other regional circuit courts don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, in-bank in just meaning? The, the full court. The full court or right. a or a portion of the full court. Aren't Ninth Circuit in banks like a, uh, just a larger panel? I mean, well, this is, this yeah. is what I'm referring yeah. to, okay. right? The fact yeah. that the, 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 uh, unlike many of the, in fact, it could be all the other regional circuits where the size of the court is such that it is a practical thing to ask the court to sit as an entire court together. And for the non-lawyers and hearing this phrase in bank and what does that mean? Well, just by way of contrast. So the Supreme Court always sits in bank which is to say it always sits as a full court. The Supreme Court of the United States does not hear cases in panels. Except in cases of recusals. Of yeah, yeah. Well, that and that is still the full court. It's yeah. all the judges who can who hear can the hear case it. hear yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and so one consequence of that, of course, is that uh, in, a, in a court that always sits in bank, its most recent case is always the most authoritative case uh, on, a, on an issue. Uh, whereas a court that sits in panels, it's the it's the prior panel decision at some point in time that is going to control future panel decisions, right? And because unless that circuit court hears the case in bank in the interim, which is why you get judges doing what happened in this executive order case, right? Because they're they're saying, wait a minute, that panel opinion is going to bind me. Uh, in some future panel case, I don't like that. So let's hear it in bank so that the in bank opinion is the governing opinion. Um, now, the Ninth Circuit, because it's so big, has this sort of mini in bank, which is some f- segment of the court. I don't know what it takes to get the entirety of the Ninth Circuit to hear a case together, right? Because that's a very large number of judges. I don't know. It might be 28, uh, but yeah, it's a I very just, big number. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to 
you know, some of the other regional circuits, you know, maybe it's 10 judges or 12 judges or nine judges. Like it, active judges now. There's active Yeah, those are the ones who, is, yeah, yeah uh, generally speaking, um, those are the ones who, I think if a senior judge is sitting on the panel in a case that's taken in bank, I think that senior judge sits on that in bank case, although the federal rules of appellate procedure might have changed that recently. So I, I don't want to commit to that. But point, get back to the point. The yeah. point is uh, that uh the the Ninth Circuit's in bank procedure is is I think it's unique because of its size, the court size, and and the Ninth Circuit's size is a sort of hardy perennial of appellate law nerds. Like, should it be that big? Should it get divided into two smaller circuits? Uh, blah blah blah. You know what I'm going to come out in favor of right now? Okay, cool. And this is um now to Lay be clear, down there. to be clear, I haven't thought about this. Okay, cool. Meaning that I definitely want to take a hard position. Stuff. Though, yeah, I'm going to take a hard position. The Ninth Circuit should not be broken up. Rather, the other circuits should be combined. Ooh. We should all the circuits should be as big as the Ninth Circuit. That's a very slate. That's a very slate pitch kind of. <laughs> I thought I would slate pitch it. Now yeah. that that is a position I'm taking with absolutely no thought. Um, but awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by it. Absolutely, dig in on that. Dude, give no quarter. One thing I've learned in uh, as as a as a lawyer, law prof, is I can probably figure out how to justify this. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I'm not so so worried that maybe we'll get a guest on some some appellate Twitter person. You know, uh, let me and let me make an alternative. I think we should redraw the lines of all the states and all the circuit courts as a consequence to more uh, evenly approximate equal population in yeah. all of the regional you love circuits these maps, don't in you? all of the states. Yeah, let's come up with a totally new map. I love these maps that, that, that try to do it mainly around watersheds. I, lo- I love Ooh. these. These are really cool. I like the idea. Oh, and we can call them the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Watershed. What, I like the idea of the United States Court of Appeals for Cascadia. Oh, I, Cascadia just sounds like a place you I would live. so want to be on that court, too. I would. Yeah. My, my heart hurts every time I realize I'm, you know, not in the Pacific Northwest. And this is no, <laughs> this, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not slagging on, on where we live at hey. all. It's just like, you know, I, you know, yeah. it feels like we, when I was on this backpacking trip. I we, lived there. We went I, out I to lived the there for a while. I know. We, we were around Moab and uh, we were in. in no, that's not the Pacific Northwest. That's the. I know. But like, it's one. I love the West. I feel, you know, I, I, I just love it. And when I'm there, I feel like I'm like a visitor in an alien landscape. Mm, and totally. I just I love everything about it. Mm. When I go to the when I go uh, backpacking in the Pacific Northwest, I feel like I'm at home. Mm. It's kind of the difference between like you love both. But one of them feels like home. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I sorry think that, that your heart hurts. I think that's important to, to clarify. I think yes. this is important to get out on the table. So let's get on the mailbag. Okay. Because um, we've done the Twitters and the Facebooks. I think the first one is listener Alex, who, let me just read this. I, I'm a legal layperson who has felt a bit out of my depth with some of the episodes you've done recently. Even on topics that affect my daily life, like local government or originalism, I feel like I lack some some 100-level law knowledge that would help me follow along with the conversation. To that end, I'd like to hear a few more foundational episodes to give me footing next time you delve into the weeds. Anyone who's writing for newspapers and general audiences would be a good guest for these, but I'd love to hear you talk with the author of The Illustrated Guide to Law, Nathan Burney. Still love the show, even when I get confused, listener Alex. So. I'm not familiar with that illustrated guide to law, but nor am I. But that's something that we can that we can look into. Yeah, I would say I don't. I just don't know what topics it covers. So because you could do a foundation, you could do a five year podcast series on nothing but the foundational concepts of law. Mm. 
Well, funny you should say that. So I have I have two things that I'm doing mm. that could help with this kind of thing. One, as you know, I release the podcast that um, and the readings for my Modern American Legal Theory class. Yes, which may be slightly I I don't know. It depends on how familiar you are with like philosophy and law already as to whether these will be good entry level things. So that's yeah, whether you would think of them as foundational. Yeah, so that's on my Hydrotech site under I think Legal Theory One Hundred One. The the readings, links to the readings, right. and and you can subscribe to the podcast there or just download the audio. The the other thing I'm doing right now oh. is I am designing and building a, a Foundations of American Law course, oh. which will be available for our undergrads here at University of Georgia. And oh. I'm sure that I'll be releasing some of those materials as well. I did not know that. And that class is being designed to fill this kind of need. Like Ooh. if you're a generally, you know, smart, curious person, I, I, I'm of the opinion that, that there's not that much that you need to know in order to start at least to kind of understand. The goal of this course is going to be able to engage in the kinds of discussions that I have with my Supreme Court discussion group. Have so, you deceptively concealed this fact from me because you believe that I would interfere with your effective execution <laughs> of this task? No. I, in fact, I was going to ask you about a few things about this in a little bit. We'll have that conversation offline. Okay. But it, it's going to be, I'm doing a test. But you agree that it's somewhat suspicious that I am learning about this only now. Well, you knew I was doing an undergrad no, class. I, uh, well, I knew you were, yes, but I didn't know what, what it was or that it would have these things or that it would be this interesting. Oh, well. Because I, I didn't know any of the details. So that's. Let's be clear. I'm not. I'm aver- deeply I, troubled let's be clear. By... I am not advertising it as interesting. Okay. Ben, you also <laughs> seem to be disclaiming any strategic objective here. No, the, the, the only objective. Uh, strategic objective vis-a-vis me. And oh, excluding no. me from the, the very interesting and, and. That you're 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 trying to fence me no, this, out because you believe I would frustrate your right. objectives. No, this is not like all the parties I have over here that I don't get invited. Yeah, exactly. This is okay. not like that. It's this not is like a different that. category. Okay. Different category. There's a different set of reasons that I've kept Understand. this from you. Okay, That's, I just want to clarify on that. <laughs> no, but uh, so the, the goal would be that if you if if you're a you know a smart interested person and you learn a few things about about law, like here are the garden here's the kind of just garden variety legal argumentation. Here's yeah. some things that lawyers throw around. Here's the structure of the U.S. government. Here are some things about courts. Here are some things about legislatures. Here are some things about administrative agencies. Right. A little bit of background. Then when you read a Supreme Court opinion, you say, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Now, now, maybe I can't write a, the best brief in the world because I, maybe I need to go to law school and just practice writing arguments a bunch. Right. But I will at least be able to consume these things yep. and understand oral arguments. Here's why I think that is is extremely interesting and extremely important. I think that uh, and this is this is hardly hardly the m- most exciting or, 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 or original thought in the world, but but I think that uh, that what you just described is a basic part of civics education. Yeah, that's why but, I'm thinking of it as like civics plus. Yeah, because yeah. our but it isn't civics plus. I think it's civics. I think it's civics core because uh, and this is sort of uh, De Tocqueville's point, right? It, in in the United States, th- this is a republic of law. There's some sense in which that's basically what this place is about. Yeah, uh, it's not about a particular um, family of people that grows over time into uh, into a nation um, uh, of of common like interconnected familial heritage. That's not how we came to be. Right, we came to be uh, a bunch of people. I mean, co- story's complicated, obviously, but but. 
But there's some sense in which we came to be because we decided to create a set of legal institutions for ourselves. So, so de Tocqueville sort of in America says, wow, the lawyers are the regime. L- law is what these people seem to do a lot, right? Every important issue becomes in, becomes enmeshed in the law. Yeah, I mean, one way of seeing it is that, that lawyers in, in specific acts of litigation are kind of the mechanical end of the, of, of the democratic project, right? They are the mechanical end of the right. rule of law. Like the rule of law is kind of what defines us. Like, we, right. you know, there's, there's this ideal that is authoritative, right? That we will, they will, we will bend to certain institutions acting yeah. in particular ways, right? Rather than, than bend the knee to a particular person, as you say, right? right. And, and lawyers, even in small litigations, uh, also in large litigations and in, and in big constitutional litigation, whatever the scale, right? That is just the kind of turning of the gears, which is the actual practice of this In, thing. in a case where people are engaged actively in a dispute about the upshot of existing rules and standards. Yeah. Of course, an entire separate activity is, is, you know, privately planning and negotiating and writing contracts in the shadow of all those things because you're not, because you disagree, because you agree and right. you're trying to do so. That's also lawyering and, and accomplishing things uh, under and with law. So there, it, there's just this very basic sense in which if you, if you aren't familiar with those things and what's so great about Alex's message to us, if you're, if you're feeling a, a bit uh, out of touch with that, or you don't feel like you've got it at your fingertips. That there's a sense in which your 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 basic civics isn't quite up to where you want it to be, and so that class could, is is part of a basic civics education. I think for right. someone who uh, who lives and works and and engages in being a United States person. Like it, that's yeah. really important. Yeah. And I mean, it is true. So, like some of the stuff we talk about, like some of the federalism episodes, which, which there's nothing difficult that we ever talk about on here. It's like a bunch of simple stuff put together. This is what I always tell my law yeah, students, I think right? That's basically I mean, right. There's a bunch of very simple moves put together, but this is also true when I was in math, right? In math, I would attend a talk, probably get through the first 10 minutes and eventually you kind of get off track and you wouldn't be able to. And that's just because like every single move is very easy. But, you know, math notoriously is a bunch of simple moves which lead to something surprising, right? Yeah. And, and, and the brain, like, eventually kind of chokes on these simple moves, right? Um, and keeping the thread takes kind of study and practice. So, so too with law. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're bun- and, and also there's some jargon. Sure. And, and I'm sure on some of these episodes we've kind of thoughtlessly lapse into jargon lapse into jargon and 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 forget that people don't have it and and it's like that like that one like gap and this was also true in math like someone introduced an idea in a talk and the idea itself was simple but they wouldn't kind of define like how they got the result that they're using or define what the term meant and then they would use that term again and suddenly you realize i don't understand what's going on and you can kind of trace it back to the fact that they use this jargon and you don't really understand its role right yeah and so, so I think you, that can happen so you drop a well. thread and it's kind of easy to drop a thread yeah and... Um, but that's neat that you that you think there'll be some output that's available to other folk as a consequence of your working on that project. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm drafting, cool. drafting some written materials. I'm going to be recording some things. And, uh, and notwithstanding know. the fact that you've kept me at arm's length from this uh, for far too long, I will actually assist you if you would like so, me to assist you in some way. What, I, I think that would be great. Awesome. Are we reaching an agreement here? We are. There's no consideration on. There is not. We're not yeah. exchanging a, a, a promise uh, that a, a court would enforce. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's that. I think those are two. Those are two resources that at least I can stand behind. Yeah. One of them exists. One of them does not yet exist. But 
Um, but but I'm I'm acutely aware of the kind of need that yeah uh, that listener Alex talked. And it's about. a totally reasonable need. I mean, it's it there should be things like that. Uh, and so it's neat that there's this other guide that he refers to. Um, next email uh, from listener Russell. Listener Russell. This is what the, he reports that my speculation was correct because my speculation was that it was the letter Chi. Yeah. And that turns out to be what it is. And the Greek word techne. Can, can we, for spe- art. speaking of jargon and not explaining, can we explain what the email is about though? Yeah, go ahead. What's taking you so long? The, so we had talked about this, this markup language called tech and in particular LaTeX, um, which, which mathematicians, scientists, and, and other fields use to, to create, you know, their articles, even their class materials typically. And you had questioned what I, I think, you know, we, I think, I don't remember how it came up, but, but when I said LaTeX, you were surprised it wasn't called LaTeX, I think. Yeah, because it looks in using English letters when you don't know that the X is a chi, yeah. Uh, you, you think it's going to be latex. Yeah. Because there's a word latex and to, for a rubber material. Listener Russell points us to the, uh, the kind of the, the tech Bible the, um, uh, from Knuth. Funny that the difficult to pronounce thing is, is uh, the authoritative source is this guy with a K-N-U-F. Any, it, it, K, did I say F? I'm almost like, hmm. <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll blame the allergies and the head cold, but what a, what a funny, boy, we should call that F-T-H. That should be a separate letter. It'd be less confusing. Okay. All right. Um, so anyway, English words like technology stem from a Greek root. This is, I'm, I'm now quoting uh, what he quotes from the, from the tech book. English words like technology stem from a Greek root beginning with the letters tau and chi, and the same Greek word means art as well as technology. That Hence, Greek word, by the way, is techne, just so you know. It's, I think that's uh, pig, pig Latin, actually, Joe. Um, hence the name tech, which is an uppercase form of tau and chi. Insiders pronounce the chi of tech as a Greek chi, not as an X, so that tech rhymes with words like blech. It's the CH sound in Scottish words like, and here, here I'm not going to be able to... Or German words like ach. So the purpose of the pronunciation exercise is to remind you that tech is primarily concerned with high-quality technical manuscripts. Its emphasis is on art and technology, as in the underlying Greek word. If you want... Uh, if if you merely want to produce a passably good document, something acceptable or basically readable but not really beautiful, a simpler system will usually suffice. With tech, the goal is to produce the finest quality. This requires more attention to detail, but you'll not find it much harder to go the extra distance, and you'll be able to take special pride in the finished product. End quote from uh, Donald Knuth, and he he gives a citation here. Listener Russell does, and asks me whether it's simple enough, and and I I approve basically of nice. this citation. And he says, okay, back to listening to the podcast. And so of course, you know, I, I'm. I've written a lot of stuff in LaTeX, including my dissertation. And, you know, this is, this is the, what, what actually came out of, of math and went into law and had to use word again. It was like, why, why do people, <laughs> it's because LaTeX is very simple once you start using it. I mean, you know, it, it but everyone's, it's a way of, it, yeah, go ahead. just an aside, mm-hmm. everyone says that about the thing they really like. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really yeah. simple. Right. So there's some sense in which the, the fact that, you know, item I is simple for person P is, is going to be a predictor about whether they like it or not. Yeah. And not the other way around. Yeah. Like, I really like to say, by the way, it's really simple. Well, of course you think it's simple. You've just said you like it. But I'm giving you criteria. Those criteria are. Okay. So, so, well, I don't know if I'm giving you criteria as much as an example, but if all you want to do is, is write text without any like math markup or anything like that, mm-hmm. I mean, LaTeX is real. You just type 
words and it doesn't matter. And you put um, a carriage return between paragraphs. Okay. And it marks it up and it looks beautiful. Great. I'm sure. I'm sure. I have no reason to doubt you. I've never tried it. So anyway, no reason to doubt you. If you're not doing math, I mean, markdown is the way to go, as everybody knows. So we'll end it there. <laughs> we had a whole episode about this, so we're not going to we re- return to it for now. Um, but there was some, uh, well, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's go on. You want to do the next one? What do you mean, do I want to do the next one? Yeah, we're doing them in order. This is from listener Jane. I think this one came in over the feedback form on the Oral Argument website. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the Elephant was a terrific episode. For those like me who would have liked more discussion about the Elephant, here's a, there's a link to the excellent amicus brief filed in the Ninth Circuit by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And she gives a link to the Lawfare blog. I think that link is now dead, but mm. Lawfare blog, I'll, I'll try to include a link in the show notes. I don't know if I'll be able to this now, This week. was our discussion with Steve Vladek about yeah. the... The uh, cases that are some of which are at the Supreme Court, some of which we're still we're still waiting on the court's mm-hmm. disposition of the cert petitions, and then we got into the executive order stuff a bit, the Muslim ban. Yeah, yeah, we got into that a little bit, and this is a link to a brief filed in the original Muslim ban case, and um, so I'll try to find. I may not be able to do it this week, but um, but if you go to Lawfare blog, which has um, been endorsed by the President of the United States on Twitter. You do know this, right? I did not know that. Yeah, he tweeted out, you know, just look at Lawfare blog or something oh, like that. Cool. Yeah, so it's been endorsed. This is, a, for them. this is the official stamp of approval from the United States government. No, but they've done a great job with a bunch of national security. Oh, yeah, um, that's a very good blog. That, that blog, that, that site and Just Security, yep. which I think Steve contributes to, are both mm-hmm. like excellent resources really for yeah. the crazy times in which we find ourselves. So if you go on there, you will eventually find this brief because I think they do have a repository of some of the, mm. some of the briefing there. Okay. Uh, listener Spencer? I was re-listening to your first annual oral argument roundup in which Joe has a hilarious vocalization of that phrase, and uh, that phrase being Rifra. What was my vocalization? I, I, don't, I don't remember, honestly. I don't either. And Christian unnecessarily corrects himself about ending sentences and prepositions, something that is fine, except for perhaps in terms of style, or in the case that the preposition is performing no function, as in, where are you at, instead of just, where are you? Uh, Although no one would say, where are you at? They would say, oh, they, where are you at? They would say what? Where are you at? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't say where are you at? People say that all the time. Where? Well, I just find that odd. There. Well, I mean, a lot of stuff the, is the odd. The problem in that phrase isn't the word at, it's the word are. You don't need, you say where are you at? <laughs> we right? should write that. Yeah. Well, you know, we're getting old, Joe. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> I know, well, believe me, I'm well aware. Because I, you know, you know how uh, when we were young and there were like older grammarian types who objected to perfectly sensible um, yeah. innovations in grammar and yes. and we couldn't understand it because you know we this were the is, innovators yeah it's because this is our world now baby move over right <laughs> get out of here well so i'm now one of those old grammarians i think because you know what my big i hate the word pet peeve the word pet peeve may be a pet peeve of mine but mm. you know what one of my uh, grammar sticking points is that is now just taken over and i just have to deal with it well, actually, there are two. One of them is, I think, perfectly legitimate. I just need to get used to it. Which one is that? that that's using the um, the the non gendered um, uh, first, first person, uh, uh, third person singular. It, using using a pluralized form for the first. For the so, singular. So it's basically using they instead of yeah. I'm he I'm him. Th- that uh, so that you, grates on me that usage. Yeah, and so I too 
have some adapting to do, or, or maybe there will be some other substitutes that people come up with that really stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, that hasn't. I think it was in that tech book where he actually used Z, Z-E, as a non-gendered. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so, and that was a long time ago. It was really interesting. But so, uh, but they would say, like, you know, you know. Um, but give me the, the other one. That's not, because the other thing that really sticks in your craw I think I know what it is, but I want to hear you, you say it. it. I want to make you, you say it. What do you think it is? It's about building off of something or based off. Based off. That's it. Instead of based on. I'm not even insisting on based upon. Like that may. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That may be too pretentious. But based Fine. off. And I think I've said to you before, and I be- I agree with you. That is an atrocity. But the <laughs> the what I believe it it what I believe it comes from is uh, someone it, that building off of. See, building or off jumping of is, off of, right. jumping off makes sense, right. I think. And it, it refers to a physical thing that we can envision and understand. You can understand why right. some might refer to it that way. But but based off, it's like based, you'd be based on. You're talking about the base of something and you're talking about where it is. And so to say based off sounds like you're lifting something up. It sounds like a baseball thing. Like you were on base and now you're kind of like, you know, you know how you're kind of leading, you know how you're kind of like leading off the base because yeah. you're going to steal second or something like but that. But the referent just doesn't click from in my brain. Well, and so when I hear on. it, I was like, and students say it all the time. They do. I mean, the, the they young, write it constantly. They, they write it like in writing. It's all like oh, all the time. And every exam has tons of that phrase in it. All kinds so of, grading. Well, but all kinds of, you know, people... Of all kind, you know, it doesn't seem to correlate to writing ability or intelligence no. or anything else. It's like just what people are doing. And I think this is just what's changing. I'm yeah, happy it's to get the used kids to it. these days. But but the based on it has this connotation of standing on the shoulders of giants. There was this thing that came before, and I'm building on top of that thing, right? Uh, it's based, you know, there was this. Thing. And one thing is based on another. Like the base of a thing is on another thing. Like yeah. it, the physical, the yeah. thing to which you're referring physically, you can picture it in your mind, and it, and it. And I can understand what you are saying, right? Based off, based though, off. I have no but, idea what you well, mean. No, no, that means a, it's a different connotation. It's, it's like, just yeah, floating. I saw, I saw that thing, and now I, and that's that's the place from which I launched my ship. Right. But now I am going. And over you say the sea. a jumping off point, right? This thing is a jumping off point for another thing. It's like, okay, I get that. Uh, that's a phrase I've heard, and I get again. I can physically imagine something meaningful to me, right? I, but no, but again, I'm, what I'm saying is it carries a connotation that you have left that thing behind. You're not standing on those shoulders oh, anymore. Right, you're you've exactly jumped, right. You've jumped from them, like you've leapt from them. Yeah. Which They're, is the wrong thing to invoke in that context. Well, I don't mean, look, it grates on me, but I have to, like, I'm a fuddy-duddy, I guess. Yeah. You know, what are you, you going to do? Anyway, Continue I was, to I was rush re- toward the grave. I was re-listening to that because of the Justice Neal stuff when I heard, and I don't remember what that refers to, when I heard Christian Neil say Neil Gorsuch, that, probably. Oh, when I heard Christian say that Congress could make an exception to the submarine statute RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, so long as it came later in time and they explicitly took note of the exception, I felt an intuition that I had a problem with that situation. I felt one of the problems with, and I felt it was a problem I had with RIFRA itself. Um, and then he talks about like the problem with granting just general protections for religious beliefs. So you have a you have a paper out now. Let's cut to the chase, shall we? Uh, it's you have a paper out now on submarine. Yeah, I don't statutes. know if I had that out when listener spencer sent this you I, might I not but you do now and I so now. people could look at that on ssrn you could put it in the show notes yeah, put if, a link if, to, I, if i get to show notes this week i'm not okay sure you I'm might not but if you, if you do you could put it in but even if you don't get to show notes people could go to ssrn.com yeah. and they could search for your p- new paper on submarine statutes they could just type my name in submarine statutes it's, yeah. it, and it's only like a 20 page paper um hopefully kind of fun but but it deals with this uh 
problem of a statute like RIFRA, which is intended to affect the execution and even interpretation of all future statutes, unless those statutes say, you know what, RIFRA doesn't apply here. Yeah. And it, the, the, when you and I have talked about this topic in the most general terms in the past, yeah. and I do believe it had come up in the past, where you had used this phrase submarine statute, the... And the analogy, just to, to be clear, is like that these statutes are like lurking beneath the ocean. So the legislature is like on the, is on the surface of the sea about to launch a new statute, like a, right. launch a ship. And maybe unbeknownst to them, in a world where people pass many of these like RIFRA-type statutes, lurking below are submarines, which will launch torpedoes, which might uh, blow up these ships. I mean, that, that's kind yeah. of the, these kind of hidden things which are below the surface, which will affect the interpretation of statutes. And I think what I had mentioned in the past, and listener Spencer mentions it in his email, uh, the, the Dictionary Act is an example of a very old statute mm-hmm. that you, you could describe as a submarine statute and in, as, in as much as it, it affects all future statutes right. by providing definitions for terms that if not otherwise defined right. in a new statute will define those terms in, in, in that statute. Right. Um, it sort of, it's a, so it's an interpretive aid that's sitting there that helps every, on every future occasion, although Congress could derogate from the Dictionary Act by providing a more particular definition right. within the statute, which they often do provide right. definitions in statutes. Uh, uh, I mean, some statutes where those definitions are critically important, highly detailed, make a huge difference to the outcome of how you analyze things. This is this is absolutely the case with the Copyright Act, for example, mm-hmm. uh, it, which I've been teaching lately in the IP survey. And so the use of the definitions has been on my mind in that sense. So so do you find those the Dictionary Act? Do you think that's deeply troubling and problematic? No. And, uh, you know, you should read the article we'll talk about it at some point but i i don't say that submarine statutes are as a class like unconstitutional i'm not concerned about that or even bad as a class um but they have a cost Mm. and and they might also provide some benefits and the benefits come in terms of modularity and 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 the 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 costs come in interfering with what i call the the initial uh legislative intention like that that all theories of interpretation even though they differ very much about where they look to translate statutes into meaning, whether they look at text or they look at how a contemporary audience would receive that text or how an audience around at the time the statute was passed would have received the text or what the legislatures believed that it meant or how they think it would apply. There there are so many different ways mm-hmm. of deciding how you extract meaning, how you wring meaning from kind of the sponge that is a statutory act, right? But part of my claim is that they all rely on the idea of that legislators were making a decision. And I think implicit in decision-making is that you have like some rationality of like your action, right? That's what distinguishes uh, a decision-maker from say a pulsar or some natural, some natural uh, object, right? Which is just has some, where, where consequences flow from something in nature. A decision-maker is someone who kind of takes in information, thinks about it, and then under some model, put something out, right? And, and right. put out some output. And that relies on, on there having some initial present intention, some, some initial like legislative intention. And so the, the submarine statutes as a cost, if there were a lot of them, m- you know, make it difficult for a legislator pr- uh, rationally to form an initial intention because you'd have to take account of how all these submarine statutes would affect what you're going to write. And so, in other words, the product of a legislative act and the product of a, a, of a legislative action, which is a statute, like what is that statute going to mean? 
it depends on that statute plus all of the submarine statutes that might bear on it, right? And if those statutes are so thick and and so like interweaving into the uh, statutory world, then it might make it hard or impossible for a legislator really to have an initial intention upon legislating. So that that's it, an initial intention that they can translate into a set of text, right? So into so, a set of words, right? So so it would. So it would trans, you know, it, it would transform if these were extensive enough and interfering enough. It would transform uh, what otherwise might look like rational decision making into just a random act of nature, right? Because mm. the it, it, so I don't want to go into it further. We can talk about it another time if okay. you want. But uh, cool. But yeah, I, I do. So the Dictionary Act, yeah, I mean, a few a few submarine statutes would be fine, right? It, it, but because the cost is basically on the to the kind of cognitive load of legislating. Just thinking, yeah. of, I was thinking of that phrase, yeah, yeah, cognitive load. All right. Next. Listener Fritz. A uh, couple of issues. Um, uh, he says, hope all is well. Podcast is great. And the latest one prompts me to raise a couple of questions uh, related to the establishment clause in the immigration executive order. And let's just say, I think Fritz was skeptical of our, of some of the claims that we made. Um, so he's talking about insofar as the um, U.S. Uh, rap. So I see that, and I think the rule against perpetuities. <laughs> I think it's a refugee assistance program. Yes. So this is the program that kind of evaluates uh, and settles refugees in the United States. Uh, he says, insofar as it already provided religious persecution as a basis for refugee status, how can the government's decision to prioritize applications under this category run afoul of the Establishment Clause so long as, when actually applying the order, the government doesn't preference or prefer one religion that is being perse- persecuted over another? So, here, you know, one of the aspects of, of Trump's first travel ban was putting the entire assistance program on hold for, 100, for 120 days and then bringing it back uh, um, only when they're satisfied about the, basically the sources of, uh, the, the ability to vet refugees, um, coming from certain places. And I think, um, what, what did you think about that, Joe? Well, my main thought as I read Fritz's email was that the, uh, a great deal, and this connects to the way the... And that was just the first part. Did you want to read the second part, or are you going to talk about both parts, or...? Well, I didn't differentiate. Okay, so what do you, how would you summarize the second part of the email? He's relatedly, but separately, unless I'm misreading the EO, the, the pause, this 120-day pause, applies to the whole program and not just the seven predominantly Muslim countries subject to the travel moratorium. Thus, unless I misunderstood one of the points on the most recent podcast, I'm skeptical of an argument that the EO violates the Establishment Clause on the grounds that the religious preference must be interpreted as a Christianity preference because the seven countries are predominantly Muslim. As I read the EO, such an argument conflates those two sections, and the only way such an argument wins is if the EO is applied going forward, only Muslim countries continue to be subject to the pause. Even then, though, I'd be skeptical that the government does not have discretion to prioritize and establish criteria for granting refugee status, particularly if refugees of minority Muslim sects also receive status. Yeah, so it's not a particularly interesting thought, I suppose. But my 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 main thought yours, you mean, not Fritz's. Correct. Yeah, Fritz's is, is interesting, definitely, uh, and and expressed uh, with precision and care. Uh, my, my, but my overall reaction to it is, and, and this connects to, in part to the way the second executive order was litigated in, in the Hawaii case, 
so much of this and so much of the executive order and what it means and whether it is permissible or not relates to questions of the intent that was used to frame it and the objective uh, standing behind all of its details. Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes, I don't think it's good uh, lawyering to ignore the context that animates and surrounds the document. Uh, Not least because all the people charged with actually administering it are fully aware of that context. Right. And if they're fully aware of it and will be relying on it, I think all of us have to take a hard look at it in that respect. So this is the first step is like translating this establishment clause that we have, which forbids an establishment of religion and right. has transformed the meaning over time in ways that lots of people have talked about from yeah. initially just a ban on federal churches in order to protect maybe state churches Correct. to something which looks more like uh, a, a wall of separation and people criticize. So there's lots of back and forth about how to realize this concept, which is in the constitution. And, and you're, you, what you're addressing here, Joe, first is like how, even if we settled on a meaning, even if we settled on the meaning that what it meant is that the government has to be secular and can't establish a religion in the sense of favoring one religion over the other, reflecting um, uh, one religious viewpoint over another, that, or, or or favoring religious religiosity over the religiosity, absence of religiosity, exactly, right? right. Um, um, but but those, how do we translate even even if we read on that meaning? How do we translate that into a kind of test that a court could perform in order to check the executive or the legislature uh, under that principle? And do, one facet of that: Do we consider the intentions? Like, do we try to do we take evidence of what the intentions of an act would be, or do we just look at text, or do we just you know how do we do this? And, and I think that we would want to in, simply because the maybe we maybe we would try, and maybe we would ultimately conclude it was unworkable. But I think that certainly at the outset, the reason you would want to take uh, uh, evidence about that intent is because you would not want to create a, a, a set of structures that people could avoid uh, by framing something that on the surface appears neutral, but but that's just a pretext yeah. for achieving a, a an otherwise uh, improper objective. And so you need to, you need to try to, you need to give yourself ways to ferret out whether or not the, 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 forbidden objective is being reached on by other means i think we talked about this on the don't last you i mean show. don't you need yeah. to have some kind of well, way to get to that i think I, you'd want i think you'd want to if it, if it yeah. matters enough to you to 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 require something and to and to man uh and to forbid other things uh if you if it really matters to you to forbid something you you want to care about whether someone's actually reaching it by some other means rather than blinding yourself to whether that's what they're doing so i think there are two issues here one everybody knows what's going on Right. Um, you know, this was an attempt to. Well, in this particular right. case, and, yes, but it raises the more general. Point. It raises the more general point. And uh, so even if I were to ignore that and just look at text and try to determine, you know, generally, can I detect some kind of religious animus or religious favoring in this text based on other kind of empirical facts about the world not related to anybody's intentions? Like if I did that, I would still look at this travel ban. And I would see, or, or this part of the travel ban, and I would see section C, which is, I hereby proclaim that the entry of nationals of Syria as refugees is detrimental to the interests of the United States, and thus suspend any such entry until such time as I have determined 
that sufficient changes have been made to the program to ensure the admission of Syrian refugees is, cons- is consistent, blah, blah, blah. You combine that with Section B, which says in, uh, after this program resumes, after this 120 days, which, by the way, I think is the same, like for the new executive order, even though time has passed, they still use the 90 days for the first thing. That, like, what have you been doing in the interim? Were you wrong the first? It's, none of it makes any damn sense. But uh, in Section B, uh, it says when the program resumes after these 120 days, um, the, um, uh, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security is further, is further directed to make changes to the extent permitted by law to prioritize claims made by individuals on the basis of religious-based persecution, provided that the religion of the individual is a minority religion in the, invi- in the individual's country of origin, or country of nationality. So these two things together, and, if, and you, there's also a site, and I'll try to include it in the show notes as well, um, admissions and ar- arrivals uh, from the Refugee Processing Center, where you can actually go and look at data about where people are coming from, um, you know, where, where so, which will help kind of put some meat on the bones as to who's being excluded by the shutting down of this program. Mm-hmm. Um, but those two things together tell me that it's, it's clearly designed, I think, to uh, favor Christians coming from Syria. You know, I mean, you know, and, and that, combine and that, that with an empirical fact about the fact that Syrian refugees are not dangerous. There's been no right. Then and you that's start something saying, oh, you're inferring from this? a careful look at text and structure and and some empirics about the world. Yeah, right. Uh, and 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 I think that even even um, so, so when I raise the question about looking at intent, there's there are some underlying questions about so so what is good evidence of intent and and what what universe of that good evidence is the kind of evidence you would look in that at in this instance. And I think even people who are very suspicious of looking at intent for certain reasons would agree that an argument about text and structure and what you can fairly infer from it yeah. as the real objective of the, of the order, yeah. uh, they, they would, uh, I think they, that would be congenial to just about everyone, even someone very skeptical of intent otherwise yeah so if you had some suspicions and then uh, you would look at this and they would I, I think it would not necessarily confirm those suspicions but it would certainly be some evidence that right. you were warranted in having them now so even if you don't want to look at someone's twitter stream is what yeah. i'm getting at right even yeah. if you don't want to look at the promulgating authorities personal statements yeah and there could be reasons why that would be a bad idea to look at them there could be reasons why it would be a good idea to look at them but put that entirely to the side you still have evidence of intent from the thing itself Right. Mm-hmm. What is a person who who what is it a person is trying to achieve when this is what they write down? Right. And you try to make sense of applying it in an even handed way. You still get to these other outcomes. You're and like, gosh, this sure, sure looks like a Muslim ban. And there's a question. If you had read this section about the refugee program and you didn't have existing suspicions about the kind of religious discriminatory attitude of the people who wrote it, would, would this raise that structurally? And I think, again, you see this thing shutting down Syrian refugee status. You look at data about the world and you say, huh, that that seems unusual. And then you combine it with this thing about favoring, uh, uh, about basically making exceptions for um, uh, Syrian Christians. Yeah, yeah. or it would apply that way in the context of Syria and say something funny is going on. I think you would say that. Right. Right. But the the, the broader issue is when you have more generalized evidence that the author of a piece of law, whether it's an executive order or something else, is in fact a religious bigot, right? And, and this is, I think Eric Posner brought this up in his, his blog I saw around this time, saying, you know, what do you do if you conclude that the president's a bigot and then 
and you use intention as the key to invalidating law, whether it's executive orders or something else, then how could the president ever do something, even if it's good? Because that intention is always there because of what you, or you'll always find it because you've concluded the president generally is a bigot. And, you know, I thought about that a lot. Like, you know, what, how is, you know, suppose there, there are versions of this kind of executive order which might be warranted that, that the Obama administration could come up with or a Romney administration or some other administration where sure. you don't have that suspicion of, of deep-seated religious bigotry like you do with Trump, frankly. Uh, and, and it occurs to me, yeah, I mean, so he said do a Muslim ban, do it legally. He talked about Syrian refugees throughout the campaign in ways which were absurd and ridiculous like everything else the guy says. And the strong conclusion that, that I reach is that he's a generalized kind of religious bigot about these kinds of things. And it makes suspect all of this kind of stuff, everything touching on or, would, yeah. or, would, or anything that basically would kick down toward religious, uh, uh, religious, religious minorities in the United States or especially It's Muslims. put in a very different light. From but, the, uh, by all this other evidence so about what, what his my, beliefs. My answer, I think, to to Eric Posner's suggestion is, yeah, all of, all of those things which have an effect of harming the very people that he has kind of talked negatively about in this way are suspect. Which just means that if they want to do something that that hurts those, that has the effect of hurting those people, they're going to have to do some serious analysis to dispel that bigotry was the source of this, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the measures right. that they took. It doesn't make it impossible. It just means you've got to, based on, on you know, the fact that you told Giuliani to, Giuliani to do a Muslim ban and do it legally, if that's what happened, and, and everything else that you said in the campaign, and, you know, it was still up on the campaign website about this, you know, that we were going to ban all entry from yeah. Muslim countries. Like, the fact that you said all those things means that, analytically, in order to be sure that this is not irrational religious discrimination and and the, and the establishment of... of Christianity or Judeo-Christianity, whatever, uh, uh, as the dominant religion in the United States, in order to dispel that, you need to show us reason. And the problem here is that all of this stuff is unreasonable. Um, and you could even say that if you want to, if you, if you expand the circle of, of the sorts of evidence that you're willing to consider of, of the official's intent, right? Um, you know, yeah, we, it would be a very different matter, I think, if if the president were to give a speech, uh, uh, a detailed speech, where he articulated that these things that I said before, um, I now view them as as troubling and wrong. And yeah. I think I misunderstood something very fundamental and basic about our traditions and values. And that that is why going forward, I'm taking a very different approach, right? Yeah. That would be another piece of evidence about that person's intent. And I think everyone would take it seriously. Now, I think all of us rate as zero the likelihood that that will happen. But that's that's a slightly different point, right? We, at my point is simply one way to tackle the problem would be if he manifested a very different intent. Mm-hmm. But by some of the very same mechanisms, namely articulating ideas in public in a way that he invited the public to hold him responsible for. Right. Like the prior statements. Just yeah. make more statements and people will evaluate them. And I think to go to Fritz's. But to sort of blind yeah. yourself to all of it in the name of, you know, we can't look at intent. I don't think that's sensible. Yeah. And I, and Nor do I think the law requires. So that. I think my points, you know, my point was twofold. Like one, looking at just text and structure, a strong whiff of unconstitutionality emerges from that section. Um, it's hard for me to separate that from what I know about this president and how this executive order came to be. If, if you also include that stuff, the 
evidence is overwhelming. And then, right. and he can get out but, from but under though, both but, of those things by writing the order differently right. and speaking differently about what it means and why it's important. But we're all struggling to work through this because, as we point, as you coined the phrase, like I think last year, we the legal asteroid has struck. Yeah, that was the name of our of our show, right? <laughs> and so we're all making trying to make sense of how to conduct our institutions and analysis in kind of in due course in, in, in the normal way in light of this asteroid strike. And uh, it's, I, I think it's really, really difficult because we, what we don't have here is, is a person who takes a, 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 a different view of the world, but one which respects our institutions and values like a, like a Romney or a, or even a W Bush or certainly George H W Bush versus like an Obama or a Clinton. These are, they have different views about what the problems are in American society how to solve them, uh, what, um, how, how much to trade off one kind of suffering for another kind of suffering. These are just basically different outlooks that they have, which will lead to different policies, Yeah, which is fundamentally different from a complete disrespect for existing institutions and especially constitutional uh, commands. Like, I'm sure, you know, Republicans and Democrats have very different views on even like prayer in school on the role of religiosity in civic society. Yeah. Actually, maybe I'm overstating because I think those views are much closer together than most people give credit for, but that's a different show. But this is to me of a different character. I don't know how much more we want to say for now. Do we want to keep going? With the next email? Yeah, the next email. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, we are, I think we're, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're we're getting on there, so we we need to we need to wrap it up soon. But yes, uh, but I feel I don't want you know, Fritz. I realize I've given you short shrift here, so we this is a topic to which we will, I'm sure, return. Well, I, I disagree that we've given it short shrift, but well, no, but, we, I, but I'm I feel sure like there's will, more to say. The topic you know? is so big yeah. that we will undoubtedly return to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just saying that it wasn't there wasn't the amount of analytical rigor that that the question deserved. Okay, but anyway, um, listener Amble. Uh, thank you for a fantastic recent run of shows. Professor Newman described law as, quote, applied philosophy, and I always love the windows y'all provide into a wide array of uh, professors' applications. I have two questions. So, again, I think that Chris Newman show was great, and it, it was, was uh, applied philosophy is how I've often thought of, of law as well. Uh, have you listened to Professor Vladek's podcast? We have. Now, this sentence, I'm, I'm going to stop this sentence early and put a period where it isn't, and I think it will apply. There's less meandering than oral argument. <laughs> That's, That's not where the sentence is. Quite ends, true. But it works, right? He says, there's less meandering than oral argument fans may enjoy, but I like it nonetheless. I, it is a fantastic podcast. It's a great right? show. Yeah, this, uh, the National Security Law Podcast. Yeah, it's really good. Um, listen to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in light of your conversations for the podcast or with colleagues, in what field of, stu- of legal study do you think you would choose to specialize if you couldn't choose your own? I don't, and I don't understand this question. If I can't choose my own field of specializing, how would I choose in what to specialize? No, he means if, if like, if you weren't an IP scholar, Joe. Yeah. Right. Um, if, you know, Joe, if you were a fruit, what kind of fruit would you be? If you were a fish, what kind of fish would you be? Okay. If you were a legal scholar who is not an IP scholar, what kind of scholar would you be? Oh, um. Hmm. So, are you are you stumped? Yeah. See, I, I'm I'm kind of a um, jack of all trades, master of absolutely none. Uh, I would say my concentration these days is in pure legal theory, 
and and yeah. philosophy. So what would I be? I think I would. That? I think I would focus on um, administrative law and mm-hmm. and similar sort of the 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 infrastructure of of legal process. Yeah, I would do either. Because I think a lot about that anyway. Like, if I if I were in a in a field, it would probably be like uh, information law and data privacy, that kind of area, kind mm, of a Woody sure. Hartzog kind of area. Yeah, um, I like m- that. maybe the robotic stuff. If, um, but another area that really intrigues me that I'm interested in doing something with in the long run is, um, the structure of dispute resolution in society. Hmm rethinking about whether even the adversary process is any good mm. um, and the role, the role of compassion and, and personal development in law in the way that we can do law. Cause you know, it's funny. I, in the, in the, if you look at the the one L sort of topics as rubrics for thinking about those core legal questions, I'm much more drawn to tort than to contract. And I mm-hmm. think that's only been true in the last few years i i think in the past before a few years ago i don't think i had a, a a sort of a strong feeling about that yeah but in the last several years it, i've developed a real preference for the questions in tort law as opposed to the sort of the private ordering stuff of contract law and it and it's neat because it's it connects to what you just said it's not because after doing these shows you want to injure me <laughs> <laughs> no okay and it's not and it's not about dispute resolution at least I don't think it's about dispute resolution methodology as such that as you were introducing it, perhaps I'm not sure mm-hmm. I need to think more about it, but, but, um, but yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah. I think our system of, of dispute resolution tends to, by kind of separating the sides into advocacy, kind of, it, it kind of cleaves people from the public interest in their mm. roles, Yeah, you know, which is, I got this just general idea that judges are generally happier than 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 lawyers who have mm. to represent one side or the other and maybe yeah. in-house counsel are happier than, right. than than litigators you know but i know many happy litigators so there, there are ways so i'm really interested in what is it that, that promotes happiness within yeah. within the inevitable like we have to have law like you but, know, we have to have but i also think juries are really you know maybe like the old adage that they're they're the absolute worst form of getting to the truth except for anything else you can think of right, right? which is of course the other main you know the uh, the the other main thing that we need to do, I mean, we, we do need to make sure that that the institutions that we have are institutions within which people can have happy lives. Yeah. Uh, because they, they ex- these institutions exist for people, not people existing for the institutions. Right. At the same time, these institutions are designed with a goal in mind of finding a way to get the best information possible to help reach the best outcome possible when there's a dispute about either what the historical facts are or about what the best outcome is or a dispute about both of those things at the same time. Yeah. And so figuring out a mechanism that can, that can generate information and get it to flow into a decision-making process so that you can have an outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that those institutions are going to make some people really unhappy. Right. And if you could have the same level of, of information generation and information processing with p- making people less unhappy, well, I'd all, I'd be all for it. Right. Yeah. And I, the I evidence have, is yeah. that, I think our, that might be achievable. And so let's think about it. The system we have, of course, is highly, is highly explained kind of 
by Burkeanism, right? It's it's this yeah, it's, right that you know institutional inertia and history well, well, and yeah, path I dependency mean, and all. You that mess stuff. with these fundamental structures, and who knows what's going to happen? And we should be wary about that. And there's not a good way to study other mechanisms, um, and there hasn't been a lot of interest in it. And anyway, so. Uh, not that there hasn't. Like ADR is a huge field, right? Alternative dispute resolution. I'm not talking just about that, but um, you know, there are drug courts. There are all kinds of other things which are meant to kind of do the processing of law differently. I'm kind of interested in that. Also interested in the law of space. Neat. Okay. Uh, next email from listener Elon. Hello. Do you fill the contract documents that I mail to you concerning the project work? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's got a, a whiff of spam. No, uh, Elon, you, you're going to need to resend those. You're going to need to resend those. So, uh, okay. I think actually we need to call it. Oh, really? So can we can we leave the remaining emails oh. for another occasion? And these are recent. Like they're, they're quite recent. So I feel a little bit less terrible for leaving them. But I but I re- really we've been at it for a while. Listener I, Russell, listener Joel. We'll we'll get to you another time. Yeah. Okay. Is that you want to end it there? I think we gotta call it. Just the clock is telling me we gotta call it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're so apologies to listeners, but we'll be back with you again soon. And my my apologies. I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna spit this one out and post it. So when you hear this, we will have pretty much just finished talking, and and hopefully there's nothing like embarrassingly bad that happened during the course of this conversation yeah well we'll find out we get angry letters to oral argument podcast <laughs> at gmail.com uh yes oral argument podcast at gmail.com you can go to our website you can hit contact you can fill out um, a contact form there and and twitter at oral argument and on fa- on the facebook did you mention that there was a dialogue between Nicholas Georgiakopoulos and listener spencer on our facebook i didn't i don't think i saw that it might have been from too long ago for me to have Included it in my yeah. notes for today. Yeah, I, I think it was a reach back to uh, a prior episode, and like, so you can you can talk with other listeners on Facebook or on Twitter. True enough. Which would anticipate the possibilities of an oral argcon. Oh, or maybe you like, could, you like mentioning that. I do because I'm really excited about the idea. I think we could do sure. some, we could do CLEs. I think we could have a lot more like people who are practitioners or or law students or recent grads, and then I really like this idea of bringing in our former guess and and having other people talk about their work and, and maybe even focusing it on their best ideas hmm. like that could the the best ideas could be the could be the organizing theme but we, we got to talk about this i i'd be interested to hear from listeners like would you come to an oral art con would you make the effort to come would 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 it matter whether wouldn't there was, it depend on where it was yeah, probably here in athens probably but maybe not maybe up in the mountains somewhere i don't know would that matter to you would it matter whether there were cles would it matter uh, you know, I, I, I'm curious about a little bit of feedback. Yeah. These are questions I want to think about as well. Cool. Okay. Well, Joe, until next time, uh, let's use our, let's do our usual sign off, our, our tagline, our catchphrase for our sign off. Nope. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>